So it's Christmas morning, 1988. Five years old, and I wake up real, real early. I do what I always do on Christmas morning around that time. I go down, wake up my sister, and I make sure that we sit right there at the bottom of the steps. And we wait. We wait until mom and dad say it's okay to run in and look under the tree and see what Santa brought. And so we sit there for 5, 10, 15 minutes, and it feels like days. We just cannot wait to get and see what Santa had brought. And so finally mom or dad come, and they tell us we can go and, and, and see what's there. We go and check that out. And, and all of a sudden, I start tearing through presents. I start ripping presents open left and right. And I'm just, I'm just so excited. I'm just looking for this certain present. And so I end up done with all my presents, and I realize that Santa didn't bring it. So I sit back in that red armchair that sat in the corner of our living room, kind of pouted a little bit. And I remember Mom asking me, well, did you get everything? Did you, did you get everything you wanted? And I remember saying, no, Santa didn't bring it. And Dad paused and he said, Josh, I think there's one more gift behind the chair. Eyes kind of light up and get this goofy grin on my face. And I, and I reach back there and there's this huge box. And it's got like special wrapping paper on it. Like I haven't seen this wrapping paper used on any other gifts. It's like the heavy duty stuff, you know. And so I, I get it in front of me and I rip one corner open. And I see the label of the present. I see that it's the original Nintendo Entertainment System. I got the Nintendo. The prized gift of any five-year-old at that time. I went crazy. Hey, if you're a middle schooler right now, uh, we forgot to dismiss you guys. If you guys want to go ahead and head on out, now would be a great time to do that. So you don't have to listen to me talk. But, uh, but I got the Nintendo. I finally got the thing that I was really, really wanting. And I don't remember a single gift I got that year other than the Nintendo. That's all I remember. That's the only thing that sticks out in my mind because that was the gift I really, really wanted. And I bet if we talked to you guys, if we took a poll, we would we would come to find out that you have a similar story. There's one or two or three gifts in your childhood that really, really stick out. And you don't remember the sweater that grandma made you. You don't remember the dress shirt that mom made you wear to church. You don't remember that toy train that broke a week later. You remember those gifts. Maybe it was a Red Ryder BB gun. Maybe it was a, a dollhouse or a Barbie. And clearly I know nothing of girls' gifts. But, but whatever it was, it just really sticks out in your mind. And, and if you're a parent and you bought those gifts, you know that it is just a joy to watch your kid open up that one gift you know they're going to go crazy about. And you get to watch their eyes light up and their face light up. But the bad thing is you got to watch them fake appreciation for the rest of the gifts, right? Oh, another shirt. <laughs> oh, this is so cool. Thanks, Grandma. Thanks, Dad. You, you put it, you hold it up for the one picture and you put it down. <laughs> you do, right? But if if you were like my family, we tried to kind of stretch that whole experience out. One of the kids would play Santa, and they would go around and they'd pass out all the gifts and divide them up to wherever you were sitting, and then you'd have to take turns. 
He had to take turns opening presents so you could see what so-and-so got from so-and-so, and you'd have to wait your turn, and it just drove you crazy. Or maybe you came from a, from a very progressive, very, very uh, intelligent household, and you just let your kids go crazy. And you just let them just rip open presents, and it's like a riot, and there, there's paper flying everywhere. It's like confetti with wrapping paper. And you know, especially if you're a parent, that there's a moment that's kind of like this movie clip where everything's done, there's paper everywhere, it's a big mess, and there's kind of a letdown. There's kind of comes to this point where you kind of say, it's all over. I spent all that time thinking about the perfect gift. I sacrificed some of my paycheck to buy those gifts. Then we spent time wrapping those gifts, maybe with a lot of care and a lot of thought and a lot of just really, really took time out to do it right. And these kids tore through it in the speed of light, and it's all over. Or maybe you're a kid, and you think back to some of those gifts, and you think about the ones that you weren't really too excited about, and that was kind of a letdown. Or the things that didn't fit, or broke, or, or you just didn't really want. And that was kind of a letdown. Because in Christmas, this, this holiday that is supposed to be celebrating the light in the purest form, God coming to earth, we experience a lot of darkness. We experience a lot of, a, lot of, a lot of dark feelings that just don't really fit, but are very, very present. I read a stat this week that 41% of all Christmas toys end up breaking by March. I heard that of the people who predominantly pay for their Christmas cards, or I shouldn't say pay, buy their Christmas cards with their credit card, the average month that that credit card debt is paid off is June. When divorce lawyers were asked, what is their busiest time of year? They overwhelmingly said, January. After holiday stress, after financial debt that built up, January was their busiest month. For some reason... There's a lot of darkness associated with Christmas. The holiday, the time, the moment where we celebrate the light. Last week, Paul talked about the light. We talked about how the light of Jesus Christ overcomes all darkness. And how the light is perfect. And how how we are to shine the light through what we do, through what we say. But that doesn't mean that the darkness just runs and hides. The darkness is still very much there. And so some way, in somehow, in some fashion, we've gotten ourselves at Christmas, instead of focusing on God coming to earth to be this ultimate example, to be this, this ultimate saving grace, to lead us, to, 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 to show us everything that we're supposed to do, to celebrating that, to celebrating a holiday that focuses mainly on a heavyset fellow with a beard, whose hobbies include running sweatshops and home invasion. And so somewhere, (laughs) I love that line, so somewhere we've kind of lost our way. Somewhere in the midst of this, we've gotten confused. Now at this point, it's really easy to start pointing fingers and blaming or or saying that we have to get completely on one side or completely on another. I'm not saying that. I think there's there's room for some, some blending it's not, an, it's not an either or scenario. Maybe it's a both and. I'm not saying that, that Santa's bad or that presents are bad or holiday parties are bad. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, 
is that maybe if we get to a point where we're buying one more gift, yet going into financial crisis or credit card debt, maybe that's a bad idea. Maybe that's not celebrating the light. Or maybe if we get to a point where our schedules are so busy around Christmas that we dread going to another holiday party with friends and family, maybe that's bad. Or maybe if we're cutting time short with one family or one group of friends to go spend time with another, that doesn't seem to line up either. And so maybe we need to just start to tell ourselves the presents, the parties, these aren't bad things. These are good things. But if we allow ourselves to be consumed by them, then we're definitely living in some darkness. And we're definitely living in a, in a situation that's not healthy, nor is, it, nor is it following Christ in a lot of ways. So how do we get to a point where we're able to walk along this line? How are we able to, to come to an idea where, where we're able to, to kind of figure it out together? And uh, apparently my notes are in the wrong order. Uh, okay, here we go. So, uh, so we have this whole, this whole scenario. We're kind of caught in between. I don't think this is anything new. I don't think this is anything new, this challenge of, of kind of being with the family stress or the family tension or, or wanting to go overboard and, and, not, and kind of losing sight of the true meaning of Christmas. If you think back to, to Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph, if you know the story, were two young people who were engaged to be married. They were kind of dating. They were kind of courting. Like the, the path they were on was leading towards marriage. And all of a sudden, Mary turns up pregnant. Scandal. Big deal. Mary could easily have been pushed out of the society in the best case scenario or even executed in the worst case scenario. This is a major, major disgrace, major transgression that Mary has seemed to commit. But the other side of the story is that an angel had appeared to Mary and said, Mary, you're going to have a child. I know you've never been with a man. I know you're not married, but you're going to have a child. Not only are you going to have a child, but your child is going to be God with you. He's going to be God on earth. He's going to be Jesus. He's going to be the perfect son. He's going to be the perfect example of everything. And he's going to be the one that saves this whole mess. But you're going to raise him. And you're going to be his mother here on earth. And so this angel also appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, I know that it'd be very easy for you right now to just kind of wash your hands of Mary and walk away from it. And culturally, you would be fine and very much, um, very, very appropriate for you to do that. But you're going to stay with her because she's carrying the son of God. And so Mary and Joseph are probably experiencing a little bit of stress, a little bit of tension right now. Not only have all their friends and family maybe pushed them away, maybe kind of gotten an arm's length away from them, but Mary is carrying God in her womb. This is, this is like the most pressure-packed situation you can imagine. And so the pregnancy goes on, and about eight months, nine months in, J- Joseph comes to Mary and says, Dear, we're going to take a road trip. <laughs> But not just any road trip. I'm going to put you on a donkey, and we're going, to, we're going to travel many, many miles to a city that you don't really know. Okay? <laughs> I would imagine that Mary wasn't really excited about this. Maybe culturally she didn't speak out, but I can guarantee you, maybe there's some nonverbal clues, there was tension there. In the midst of this incredible light-giving event, there was tension. In the midst of this perfect scenario of God coming to the earth, there was tension. You see them coming into Bethlehem and maybe Joseph leading Mary's donkey along and knocking on doors, asking for a place to sleep. Joseph walks in, is in there for a while, walks back out dejected, frustrated, tells Mary there's no room, and you feel the tension building and building. Maybe eventually they come to a place where the guy says, hey, 
You can go uh, out back. I got a little cave lean-to thing where you can hang out with the animals. There's straw and uh, manure and, uh, and various items of the sort, but you can hang out there. And you can imagine the conversation that happened between Joseph and Mary at this point. Well, honey, we do have a place to stay, but it's in the barn. And so this whole thing is going on. And so we see this tension already building. We see kind of this, this, this process starting to kind of come to a head. And it finally reaches the point where Jesus is born. Jesus comes into this world. Shepherds show up. There's an incredible fanfare, angels, all this great stuff. And of course, moms, you can tell us, after the birth, it's pretty much cake from there, right? It's just like smooth sailing, no problems, no fussy babies, no colic, no, none of that, right? That's, it's easy. Well, of course not. It's never easy. It's not, it's not an easy process. And Mary, a young, poor peasant girl who's been pushed aside by, by her culture, is doing this essentially on her own. She's raising God on her own. That's where we're picking up the story. If you've got a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is one of the few events we have recorded of Jesus post-birth and pre-adulthood. This is one of the few events we have where we kind of see what's going on in Jesus' life. And we know this is a few years after, after Jesus, or this is about a year after Jesus was born, but not so long that, that Mary, Joseph and, uh, and Mary have left Bethlehem. So they're still in Bethlehem, but it's not like he's just come out of the womb. He's, he's been around for maybe about a year or so. We pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2 in Matthew. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. So we have this this scene. We have these three, well, not necessarily three, you could tell, you'd be really fun at holiday parties and tell them that we don't know if there's three. You'd be, be a riot and just tell people how wrong they are for singing three wise men. We have these magi show up, okay? We have these magi show up, these wise men from the east, probably Babylon. Think modern day Iraq. These guys are astrologers. They're scholars. They, they probably worship a multitude of gods. That's lowercase g and an s at the end. There's a lot of different gods. And so these guys have studied everything and realized something's going on. There was, a, there was some sort of star that they have followed that's kind of signified this, and they, they've maybe studied Scripture, and they know something's going on. So they show up in Jerusalem and talk to Herod. Now, Herod is a bad, bad dude. Herod is, is a king that is very, very paranoid, very, very insecure. Herod is a guy that has killed family members, has killed wives, has killed sons, who he feels is a threat to his power. So Herod is not a guy you want to mess with. And if Herod hears about a rival king... Herod's going to do something about it. He's not just going to sit on his hands. So all this is going on. The Magi show up, and they go to see Jesus. And so they go out, and we'll pick up the story in verse, in verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they, had, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold 
and of incense and and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So these magi show up. They find Mary. We don't know where Joseph's at. Joseph was older than Mary. Maybe he's not even in the picture anymore. Maybe he's passed on or maybe he's just not currently there. But Mary and Jesus are there and the Magi show up and they present gifts. They present gifts and they bow down and worship. They react to what they believe who Jesus is. They believe Jesus is the king and so they they act appropriately. And most times when you hear sermons, they talk about the gifts. When they're talking about the Magi at Christmas time, we're going to talk about the gifts. We talk about gold, we talk about myrrh, and we talk about incense. Gold, I think we all know what that is. We We know that's a very valuable source. It has been valuable throughout the centuries. But incense and myrrh are are essentially two different types of of items that can be burned to give a fragrance. Incense, I think we're all familiar with, but myrrh was especially used in burials and embalmments. It kind of to hide the odor of a body that's already dead. And so these three things, these three things that are extremely valuable, that were usually reserved for royalty or the upper, 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 upper high class people, were given to this young, poor peasant couple with a newborn baby. And sometimes we talk about what those gifts were, and we really break it down. But I really want to talk about the meaning behind and some of the thoughts behind the Magi showing up and the gifts they gave and the way they gave them. So if, so if you would, I want to look at the way that the, the Magi gave their time. They gave their presence. They gave the fact that they were able to spend a large chunk of time studying about Jesus, studying about the prophecies, studying the stars perhaps, and give time to travel all that distance from basically Iraq to Israel. And so in this, in this time where they're giving, giving of themselves, you think about Mary with the newborn there, pretty isolated, maybe having some doubts, maybe questioning whether or not this is really Really the Son of God? Maybe she's just crazy. Maybe thinking about that. In the midst of that, these, these magi show up and they bow down and worship her son. Their mere presence completely validates all of Mary's hopes and completely takes care of all those doubts. These guys wouldn't show up for nothing. These guys are here for a reason. God has sent them and they're giving us these gifts. This is incredible. So these... Their, their mere presence, their, their, their decision to be there, to make the commitment to be there, speaks incredible volumes to Mary. Before those, those items are actually given, them showing up is a gift. When I was in high school, it was a Christmas Eve, and like every Christmas Eve in the Tandy household, we went to Grandma's house. So we go to Grandma's house, we open presents, we eat. We eat at Shapiro's, we get Shapiro's meat, so we eat we had Jewish kosher deli for Christmas. We always still find that amusing. But uh, uh, and so we, we eat our dinner, we open up presents and all this fun stuff, and then we go home. And usually at this point, the routine is, is that you unload all your presents, and you go and take them to the proper room. And you get them out of the way, because this is kind of the first Christmas party that we would celebrate. And so it's all about getting those presents put away early on, and kind of setting the precedent that once you get a gift, you kind of take care of it. And it's just kind of a robotic thing. You unload your gifts, you put them away, and you go to bed. That's kind of how Christmas Eve always worked. And the first year that that started to change was this year that I was in high school. See, it snowed that night, about two or three inches. Not a lot, but enough to, to cover the ground. And it was still snowing. And we got home. And without anything really even being said, we kind of went inside, grabbed some hats and some gloves, maybe put some snow boots on, and the five of us all went outside and just walked around in the snow. We played around in the snow. 
there was nothing said that was of importance. There was no time of, like, set aside time of reflection. But there we were, the five of us, walking out in the front yard and the backyard in the snow, enjoying that peaceful time with the snow still falling late on a clear night on Christmas Eve. And for whatever reason, that moment has always stood out in my memory. That, that moment has always been significant. Because in the midst of the Christmas hectic nature of the season, we as a family decided that we are going to give time and not just be physically present, but be emotionally and mentally present in a situation. We said we're going to do this and we're going to put everything else on hold. Because Christmas is a built-in time to stop and reflect on the light. To stop and reflect on what is light-giving in your life. To stop and reflect and think about where is Jesus in my life? Where have I allowed Him in? And maybe where should I allow Him in that He's not? So Christmas is a time to stop. And giving the gift of time, giving the gift of presence, can be more important than something that you bought at the mall. The Magi also did something else. They gave generously. They showed up with very, very expensive gifts. In the eyes of the world, Jesus had done nothing as of yet to earn anything. He hadn't performed any miracles. He hasn't given any any teaching. He hasn't challenged any status quo. He hasn't started any kind of movement. Jesus is a baby. He has done literally nothing to garner any kind of gift or praise. He was born. That's all he's done. Yet these wise men, these magi, show up and give gifts generously, not expecting anything in return. They show up, they bow down in reverence, they give gifts, and according to Scripture, they leave, and we never read about them again in the Bible. This is a moment where they decided that they're going to give sacrificially, they're going to give generously. Now, sometimes we think giving generously only means the price tag that may be hanging from the gift. And sometimes we associate our love for the person with how many of those gifts and how expensive those gifts are that we purchase them. Well, that's not really what giving generously is about. Maybe we need to start to think about giving generously or generosity in general differently. Heidi and I are your typical, young, relatively poor married couple. We don't have a lot of money. We're, we, we, don't have, we don't have anything to, to really share over and above. But we came to a conclusion right at the beginning of our marriage maybe even right late in, our, late in our engagement, where Christmas was no longer going to be a time where we really bought gifts for each other. We said we have families that are awesome at blessing us at Christmas time. They take care of those things we really need and those things that we want. They do an incredible job with that. And really, if we think about it, there's no real need for us to buy anything for each other. Plus, when you're young, married, and relatively poor, you know, not poor, but rel- not, don't have a ton of extra money, when you buy a gift for your wife, buy a gift for your husband, it's probably coming out of the same bank account. So, I mean, really, you're kind of working against yourself. So we said we're going to do two things with the money that we wouldn't normally spend. The first thing is we're going to go on a nice date. We're going to go to a restaurant that we don't normally go to, a restaurant that we, we think is a little bit out of our league. So we go to Applebee's and uh, – just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> no, so we go on a nice dinner and uh, two for 20 or whatever that is, you know. Uh, so we go on a nice dinner, and uh, we, we just we'd spend time together. We usually try to plan that out before the Christmas season really kicks in. Before the hectic nature of everything really starts, we set aside a night 
where we can go and eat at a restaurant that we have no business being at, where we can go and sit and just enjoy ourselves for one night and just reflect on the year and talk about Christmas and just talk about what's going on and just enjoy each other. So we give each other that gift of time. But the second thing that we do, and and maybe this is something that you could work in, and remember that that we're working with a very small amount of money, um, is that we give something away. And I I hesitate about telling you this because I want to elevate elevate us, so remember that it's a small amount of money. But we give some money away to some friends of ours because we have several friends who are in ministry vocationally. And they're doing ministry, whether it's mission work or church plant, solely on the support of individuals and organizations. And so they need money to live. And so we take that half of what we would spend on each other and we give that away to them. No questions asked, nothing, nothing of the sort. Nothing, no, nothing, nothing in return. The second, second example of giving generously happened Friday night. Friday night, we kind of ended a challenge with our high schools, our high school students. Our high school students, I challenged them to buy one less gift. I said, buy one less gift. And I thought, well, I didn't think. T-Rock had, had a nice little add-on to that. Challenge your parents to buy you one less gift. And then take that money, ask your parents for the money, or take the money you would have spent on something else, and let's put it in a pot. And we'll take that money that's in the pot, and we'll go buy, buy presents for Christmas at the creek, which is what the tree out here um, is for, where the presents are being collected. And maybe your family has done that. Maybe your family went together and went and bought stuff. That's great. Maybe your family's going to go and serve one of the opportunities that's in the worship program. That's great. Don't feel like I'm adding things on here. Don't feel like I'm raising the bar of expectation. If you're already serving, that counts. You're fine. But one of the things we do with our high school students is we challenge them with that. And so we saw, we just kind of told ourselves, we'll see what happens. Well, the first week, no money came in. And the second week, no money came in. I'm getting a little, a little nervous. So I sent out an email. I said, all right, guys, you know, literally put your money where your mouth is. Let's do this. We're not going to go hang out if we're not going to buy gifts. Okay? So if you want to go hang out and have fun and all that, we've got to actually buy gifts for some kids that need them. And so they, they kicked in and they kicked in big. Friday night, we went to Walmart, two carts, $150, we went in and bought gifts. And it was a lot of fun. We didn't, we didn't, you know, fill the carts full. We didn't do anything crazy, but we were able to buy some gifts for some kids. And if you, come, if you came in this morning and were wondering why gifts were hanging on the tree, that's because we thought the tree needed some ornaments. So we put some, tree, some ornaments on the tree Friday night. But that was another example of high school students giving something, giving sacrificially, giving up something. So maybe for you, this Christmas season, you need to think about how can I give generously? How can I give the light by giving without asking for anything in return, without expecting anything in return? How can I give generously in that way? The, the third way that, that the Magi kind of give and, and kind of challenge us, I think, to give differently is they gave encouragement. They give a lot of encouragement. Like I said, Mary, young, peasant, poor girl, raising a child, probably without the support of friends and family. Raising a child on its own, that'd be hard enough. And not only that, this child is the son of God. And so there's all this built up pressure. And these men with these incredible gifts show up right in the midst of maybe something that's pretty difficult, raising a child. Right in the midst of, of all those doubts that are probably creeping in at this point. Right as things are getting really hard, these guys show up and they just give encouragement. They say, your son is the son of God. He is the king of the Jews. And we're going to worship him. Maybe for you, 
Christmas time is very, very stressful. Going to so-and-so's house for Christmas is something that's full of anxiety. You know that as soon as you walk in the door, there are going to be conversations that are very, very negative in nature. Perhaps there's going to be conversations comparing how you raise your kids as opposed to how they raise their kids. Maybe there'll be some passive-aggressive comments that are never really dealt with but are put out there just to fester, and they build and build and build. And every year you leave that, that party saying, I never want to go to another Christmas party like that again. I never want to deal with that again. I'm never going to let so-and-so talk to me that again. So you come back the next year with your fists up, your claws out, ready to fight. You come into that situation extremely, extremely defensive. And you're ready to defend whatever. And you'll do whatever it takes to do that. Maybe we need to change that attitude. Maybe we need to recognize that that attitude is fighting darkness with darkness. Maybe we need to realize that we need to take a posture of giving light, of shining light, of living out the gospel, maybe in cleaning off the table and doing the dishes. Maybe in biting your tongue. Maybe in giving a compliment before an insult can be given. But deciding now that this Christmas season, you're not going to get caught up in that battle of darkness. You're not going to get caught up in that. You're going to wage a war of light. You're going to approach it from that, from that, that position. So if Christmas is a time to do that, if Christmas is a time where you can step in and do that, maybe we need to remember some of those cultural things about Christmas that kind of enforce this. If you have been threatened by your parents growing up when you are a little kid by the naughty list, if you've been threatened by your parents that you're not going to get any presents because you're going to be on the naughty list, would you raise your hand just so we see this? If your mom or dad has ever said to you, you better be good or Santa won't bring any presents or I won't get you any presents. We know as adults that those are just empty threats, right? Like we know that all like, like the naughty list isn't really going to happen. Like mom's always going to make sure it's even. Like that's not really how it works, right? We know that the naughty nice list is just a fabrication of parents who are exhausted and tired in the months of October and November and want to get their kids to behave. Like, that's fine, keep doing that, whatever. But we know, we can recognize that that's what it is. And I think sometimes we approach Christmas, we approach our faith, thinking in terms of a naughty and nice list. We think about it, I have to be in good with God to really reap the benefits of being close to him, to reap the benefits of having grace and forgiveness, to reap that closeness, that intimacy, that love that he so freely gives. We think that we have to do something to get to that point. At Christmas time, maybe it comes out in this. I want this Christmas to be perfect. I want this to be the best Christmas ever. And all we're doing is falling into that trap of the naughty and nice list. All we're doing is telling ourselves that lie that we can do something to make this perfect. That we can do, do something. We can jump through enough hoops to make it the most memorable Christmas ever. And we fall into that trap, that darkness that's so prevalent. And when we recognize that, I think we need to look to the Magi. Because the Magi give us the perfect model for what it means to be an outsider at Christmas. Because for some of us, when we go to family get-togethers, we're an outsider because of our faith. 
We're an outsider because we would like to celebrate Christmas a little bit differently. We're not saying we have to get rid of presents or sin or anything like that, but we would like to celebrate a little bit differently. We would like to acknowledge the light of Jesus Christ. And that might make you an outsider. Maybe in a home, maybe at work, whatever it is. But the Magi give us this perfect example because if you think about it, the Magi were not believers. They were heathens. They believed in a pantheon of gods. They followed the stars. These are complete outsiders. They're the most Gentile people you can imagine. The the Magi would not be welcomed in a synagogue and and probably not welcomed in many churches. The Magi were completely the last people you would think would be held up as giving a proper response to the fact that Jesus is king. And yet these are the people who Matthew decides to hold up as an example. Because all the Magi do is they respond to the light by giving light. They respond to the light by giving light. So for us, this Christmas season, here's the challenge. To simply respond to the light by giving light. Don't feel that you have to have all the answers. Don't feel that you have to live a perfect life. Don't feel that you have to create the perfect Christmas by buying X number of gifts and going to X number of parties. Don't feel that you have to portray the perfect family. And don't feel like you have to jump through any hoops that you can create. But simply respond to the light by giving light. And realize that that means a lot more than a Red Ryder BB gun or a Nintendo or whatever it is that's wrapped up all nice. Because what's really going to last, what's really going to be memorable, is when we give time, we decide we're going to be present and give time. When we give generously, and especially when we give generously in a different way, and when we give encouragement to one another. Because we know that there's going to come a point, December 26th, 27th, beginning of January, where we had that Christmas funk let down. And it's all over. And there's gifts to return, and there's things to fix, and there's things to assemble, and there's all this stuff sitting in your living room, sitting in your bedroom. In those moments, the challenge is is to remember the light and remember why we give that light. Would you pray with me? Father God, Lord, we are a people uh, that are, are, are facing a huge challenge this Christmas. It's so easy to to associate love or or compassion or or gratitude with a price tag or a receipt. Father, I'm sure there are pressures to show up to a gathering with, with the right gift, the right dish. But Lord, I just pray that those things can all become secondary and that we can start to understand that that You came as perfect light and that we need to respond to that. And one of the ways that we can respond properly is by giving that light. And so, Father, let this Christmas be a season of light and not a season of darkness. In your Son's name, amen.